0: Junior Doctors' Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive, but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana, and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode. Stack. Episode of Junior Doctors' Corner. Now, you might have noticed that this episode is a little bit longer than usual, but that's because it is chock full of amazing advice by Dr. Peter Fauzi. And um, I cannot wait to share this with you. It's about medical research. I find that this is a very... Uh, Important topic as it is a very common dilemma amongst med students and junior doctors about how to get started on medical research and, you know, at what point should they start doing one. Um, You know, certainly with the issue of trying to get onto training programs and it becoming a requirement to enter one, um, I thought it would be great to tackle this topic. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed the interview. Hi, Peter Fousey. Thank you so much for joining me on Junior Doctor's Corner.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure, Dana. I'm very, very happy to be here.
0: Well, actually, I should call you Dr. Peter Fousey because when I first met you, you weren't doctor yet, but now you are.
1: That's right. Um, time flies, and um, it's been uh, it's been quite a journey since.
0: Now you are a currently an intern, um, but you have a lot of experience in research, which is the main topic of discussion today. Uh, before we jump into the meaty stuff, um, can you please briefly introduce yourself to our audience, please?
1: So, um, yeah, um, my name is Peter um basically at the tail of my medical internship at the Gold Coast University Hospital. I've been pretty much Queenslander for the past six years. Um, prior to that, I lived for another six years in Adelaide. Uh, but before that, I lived in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, for the first half of my life, pretty much. So that's my background. I'm an Australian Coptic Egyptian, so Coptic just essentially means that I'm an indigenous Egyptian, just like there are indigenous Australians. So Alexandria was very much a coastal city, which is why the Gold Coast feels a lot like home to me. For medicine, I started off doing an undergrad degree in uh, physiotherapy, and my favorite subject back then was actually neuroscience, mainly because I had a really good lecturer who was also very active in research. And I think that was really the first time I sort of realized that whilst we kind of knew so much about medicine... um, What we still don't know sort of dwarfs our current knowledge, and I think that particular lecturer gave me a very good insight into that. So since my early years of med school, I've tried to take part in various projects and contribute to research, and my path was not easy. I met a lot of obstacles at the start and eventually went from hitting a lot of dead ends and almost giving up on the concept of research to um, eventually having sort of more than a dozen or so publications in reputable journals, which is not bad for a PGY1 doctor. So, um, yeah, it's been the journey.
0: <laughs> so you talked a bit about your research experience, which is actually quite extensive and definitely a lot more than what I did as a med student or slash junior doctor. I'm really interested to talk about your most or more recent research paper where you looked into the um, college requirements when it comes to research. I think it's quite um, important for us to delve into this because a lot of med students and junior doctors are really worried about whether they're going to get onto specialist training programs with how there's a bottleneck with training positions. And I think that's been exacerbated by COVID. I have friends who have missed out on getting onto training programs because of COVID. And one of the things that um, has become a distinguishing feature between candidates is, you know, whether they've published a research paper. So can you please tell us a bit more about your research on this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this this was definitely one of the more interesting uh, papers or projects uh, that I had the privilege of working on. The paper was supervised by a number of research experts, um, including Professor Paul Galacio, who's really a world-renowned um, expert in the area of evidence-based practice, Um, It's published a lot of work in The Lancet about junior doctors' engagement with research. And as you mentioned, it's really been a major issue for quite a number of years. And it's been sort of a contributor to burnout amongst junior doctors. And with COVID, it's even worse, as you've mentioned. What triggered this paper or this project is um, when we think about junior doctors and their engagement with research, you know, ideally, um, every doctor out there should be able to look up uh, studies and look up evidence-based um, data and actually, you know, practice evidence-based medicine. So everyone needs to be able to do a PubMed search and look up for evidence and translate that into their practice. But not every doctor has to be a researcher, right? Um, I mean, um, some doctors may choose to participate in research. So some doctors may choose to be participants as in As a a doctor, you might be um, invited to take part in a qualitative interview project, uh, looking at your experience as some topic. And and I think even as an intern, I've been invited to take part in projects that way. So you're a participant, but you're not really a researcher. And only a few, very few um, group of doctors may choose to become, I guess, what are often referred to in literature as um, physician scientists. But what we're now seeing is, especially with the demands from training colleges, is that um, there's a huge expectation now in that all, mostly all doctors, by the time they become registrars, they're expected to lead the project, which is a huge change and sort of a big jump from um, previous curricular outlines and previous criteria by colleges, which has hit a lot of junior doctors by surprise. What we did in this paper, and this was really a mammoth project, is we looked at what every single um, subspecialty in Australia is required um, to undertake in terms of research and experience within research by the time they're a registrar. So we didn't really focus on residents, we mostly focused on what the colleges, colleges are expecting of their registrars. And so it was a mammoth job in that we looked at all 58 medical subspecialties within Australia. And I didn't even know that there were 58 medical subspecialties <laughs> before I took part in this project. but. We looked at, you know, like RACS, Royal Australian College of Surgeons, and every subspecialty under that, so like cardiothoracics, neurosurgery, adrenal surgery, RASP, the Royal Australian College of Physicians, and every subspecialty under that, so cardiology, respiratory medicine, renal medicine, so on and so forth. Royal Australian College of Pathologists, RACGP, ANSCA, ACD, so that's the College of Dermatologists, RANSCO, Asim RANSB. It was was a huge project. We were pulling our hairs. By the the end of this project, there was so much data to get through. But eventually we got there, and what we found was quite um, staggering, really. Out of 58 subspecialties in Australia, 56 required their registrars to be at a level where they can lead or have to lead a research project. So that means that by the time they become registrars, they need to start thinking about you know, how do I get to that level? But the problem is that transition happened so quickly that most registrars, by the time they got their registrar positions, had not had the experience um, or skill to be able to lead a project. So that's, really, that's where the issue is. Um, and what we also found that was, was that 51 of those 58 colleges uh, required all their trainees to lead in the sense of be the first or second author on that project which is a big deal because it means that not only are you designing the study you're the one who's applying for ethics you're the one who might be applying for funding and all of those are steps that require a set of skills and require some experience before just suddenly undertaking and leading this project. Um, I guess the other interesting thing is what we found in that 11 only 11 colleges out of those um, 56 colleges actually required formal research training. That was quite an eye-opening project, to be honest, and, and it, it created a lot of talk, and we managed to get it published in the BMJ Open. But but when you, when, when you have this sort of gap between um, what is expected of trainees and the level of um, training that's available for them by the time they get to registrar level, mainly, as you've mentioned, it puts a lot of pressure on a trainee in that it leads to, I guess, hurried, poor quality work um it creates a focus on trying to tick a box in your cv rather than enjoy research which is really the whole point of research it's meant to be enjoyable i know sometimes that's hard to believe but when when you're not thinking about assessments when you're not thinking about you know ticking cv boxes or getting a job research is extremely enjoyable and it's and it's something that's really humbling as well once you see your work getting published out there it's a contribution that's truly everlasting because it's not just some sort of assignment that um, will be washed away by the time you graduate. This is something that will be out there for people to um, cite and read about and refer to as long as as long as the internet exists. Really, your project might be the next topic of journal club at some hospital. At different part of the world, or it might be cited in some amazing uh, trial that could end up changing practice in some huge way.
0: I'm really glad you touched on the points that you did. Um, A couple of comments. um, It was really fascinating when I read your paper, you know, like you pointed out, the expectations put on trainees. And if trainees were supposed to be at the level that they're expected of, and usually By the time people get onto training programs, they're about PGY four, five, maybe that I think that's the most common stage for people to get onto training programs in Australia. They haven't had the time to do, you know, gain all those skills, especially it's not really taught, you know, up front or uh, in medical schools, nor is it really very common for, um, All interns to have done some kind of training in doing research. You're just too busy surviving internship because it's just so full on. And then by the time you get to PGY2 and PGY3, you're like, oh, crap, I need to get my act together. And you're stressed about applying to get onto the program and and sitting all these exams that you haven't even thought about, you know, trying to do research. One of the main things that a lot of my research participants, so I did a qualitative um, study on junior doctors, I interviewed only PGY2 up to, I think the oldest was PGY4, on whether they have had any research experience, if so, whether they did it in medical school or during their residency years, what their perceptions of research are. And at the end of doing research, did they actually benefit from it? Did they actually like it? What were the actual barriers that need to be overcome in order for them to um, do research, you know, not from the participant point of view but more as the active leading role kind of researcher Um, and you made that point about you know research should be enjoyable and I really agree with you because otherwise it leads to really poor quality paper as you mentioned. Uh, I have this question for you because my preconceived ideas about research was very, very different before I started doing my own research paper. And I hated the idea of research. I thought that it was just going to be very, very boring, number crunching, pipetting little mills of things into, you know, little vials and all of that. So I absolutely just detested the idea of it. It was very negative. Um, But you know, I don't know about you, um, what were your ideas about research before you started? Were they negative? Were they positive? Did they help you propel you after you've done research? Did it help propel you towards it or did it actually turn you away from it?
1: Same, I was in the same boat as you Dana, like when when starting out as a medical student, when I thought about research, I thought I'd be working in a lab injecting mice <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly um, know a few colleagues who actually started out in lab projects, which is quite interesting, but um Instead, actually, most of my projects were, um, I guess, focused more on changing practices um, and creating new policies, which opened my eyes to just many different avenues. And it sort of helped me understand that there are so many layers um, to research um, and and many different directions that it can take. And uh, I guess... As medical students and as junior doctors, when we talk about research, we sort of think of the experimental papers sort of stuff, right? Like um, RCTs. But as junior doctors, um, one just, I think, has to understand that research is a gradual process. Um, We all start out with smaller projects. Um, No no junior doctor, no intern started off in research by leading a randomised control trial. Um, And I think that's one of the wrong preconceived ideas that I had about research. Another thing that really surprised me when I reflect on my um, research experience so far is I th- think I thought I would always be supervised by doctors, by medical doctors. Uh, but instead, most of my supervisors did not come from a medical backgrounds. Um, they were full-time researchers, so they really knew their stuff. Um, some of them had backgrounds in pharmacy, bioscience, but they were not doctors um, but I have to say they they were actually the ones who had the biggest impact on my um, on my attainment of skills and research. Really, because if you think about it, um, like most most doctors and most consultants you work with in hospital didn't have to do any research um, uh, to get in, like early on in their career. Uh, and many have so many papers published, but if you look look at, the, at their publication list, you'll see that they're pretty much the last name on the list and most of the work would have been done by the junior doctors. Um, and that's mainly because what those consultants do is that they contribute their clinical experience in helping guide the junior doctors with their research questions rather than um, do the actual work uh, in the project, right? But that's exactly where our knowledge and our skills lacking as junior doctors and so the best people to help guide that are um full-time researchers and that's that's what i that's that was a big thing that i didn't expect but um you know most of my research networks is with full-time researchers Um, they've helped me so much with my, my methodologies they've helped me so much with my um you know statistics and and that i needed for my papers Every major metropolitan hospital would have like a dedicated research unit where you can talk to people who are full-time researchers who are happy to help. Um, And that was definitely um, a a game changer for me um, because, like I said early on, I just kept hitting dead ends. I wasn't receiving as much response as I was expecting from consultants. So, like, I literally sent out heaps and heaps of emails to, like, most consultants had some interests in my area of interest, at least. And I wasn't hearing back much. Same with junior doctors. Junior doctors are terribly busy. um, And a lot of the time when you get on projects with junior doctors or like registrars, for example, when I was a medical student, getting involved with junior doctors was was a struggle sometimes because they they couldn't find the time to supervise you. They couldn't find the time to follow up uh, or respond to your emails in a timely manner. Uh, And a number of projects failed to progress because of that. And that that was another challenge for me. But it all all sort of came together um, as soon as I started building skills with the full-time researchers and as soon as I started working um, as a research assistant uh, in some of the institutions that I started building confidence in leading my own projects um, and even involving other medical students um, whilst I was a medical student as well. So... I think that those two big things would be my biggest preconceived ideas. So one would be, you know, I'm not working in a lab and two is most of my supervisors are not doctors um, and it worked out perfectly fine.
0: Yeah, and um, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Based on my own research paper, one of the things that uh, junior doctors that I interviewed anyway, they were really concerned about in addition to finding enough time to actually carry out the research and write up the paper was to have a really supportive supervisor and the ones who had turned off research were the ones who had really bad experience with supervisors where either the clinician um, didn't respond to them or, you know, didn't get along with them. It was a very, very big factor in making or breaking the research project. The other thing that I wanted to bring up was um, the junior doctors that I interviewed uh, in the past, when they um, had negative preconceptions or ideas about research, they often are the ones who have never had any research, prior research experience. And uh, you can confirm or deny this from your own experience. They often also have this perception that if they want to get onto a specific training program, for example, surgery, which I believe you're interested, when they have an idea of, okay, I want to get onto a surgical training program, then I must only do research that is relevant to only surgery and nothing else. And I um, I'm sure you can attest to this because I certainly haven't gone on to become a medical educator. Because, well, maybe at some point I will, but that was my, you know, area of research. Uh, but I'm sure you can attest to the fact that even though your topic wasn't surgical, you found and gained many skills from doing the research project, and it still would be applicable to what you do later in surgery.
1: Absolutely. Generally in medicine, I don't think there's any set of skills that you can gain in a in any discipline that that would not be translatable to another discipline and help you, you know, grow um, in in any other area with me most like at least the first three or four projects that I worked on had absolutely nothing to do with surgery and I was not first or second author on those papers um, I did not lead those papers I was a participant I was I was a, a co-investigator in those studies and I attended, um, you know, the meetings between the researchers who were on those projects and I got to learn how, how, to, how to apply for ethics, how to apply for funding, how to publish your work in reputable journals. Obviously, in research, we talk about, you know, the importance of publishing, um, because really, if you do a project and you can't get it published, then unfortunately it can go to waste. But the thing with publishing is if you're so focused on publishing, and you can end up planning your paper in a very poor quality Journal with a non-existent impact factor, and it could really harm your CV. Um, but not only that, you you're pretty much contributing to research waste, which is the complete, um, I guess, opposite of the true intention of research. Rather than contributing valuable input, you you are just wasting everyone's time, and you're actually risking um, a non-suspecting clinician who might use your paper and translate that to their practice, which could eventually and ultimately harm. I think generally, when it comes to research, really need to keep an open mind, first of all, on gaining skills and learning how to do research. And then the part about ticking off your CV boxes should come later. It should come after you've built the confidence in leading a good project and producing good quality work that you will be proud of when you become a consultant in your specialty. You can then look back and, and say, you know, when I was a trainee, um, I worked on this, and, and this has actually gone on to contribute to this particular trial or that particular literature review, you feel like you did something good, you know. You feel like you've contributed not just um, at the individual patient level, which is amazing, not 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 undermining the clinical work, of course, but at the same time, you, you're you impacting um, medicine at a global scale, and that's really what research is. And, and a lot of medical schools are recognising this in that, you know how like most med schools where MBBS – Now, a lot of MBBSs are being converted to Doctor of Medicine, MD, which is a master's um, qualification which requires many of the medical schools to contribute to, sorry, to incorporate research and, I guess, make projects available to their students. And that's often the advice I always give med students is, you know, if you're part of an MD degree and and there are research projects available, even if the projects that are made available to you are not particularly relevant to what you want to do later on in your career, jump on it because not only are you going to get research writing experience data collection ethics approval that sort of thing you're also going to you're also going to get opportunities to present your research and presenting is one of the best fruits of research that's where true networking opportunities come your way it's really an invigorating experience when you stand in front of an audience and and talk about research because no matter how junior you are you you, you are the expert in that particular area that you are um, relaying to, to your audience, and that's, that was a huge thing for me when I started as a junior medical student. Like early on in med school, as soon as I started presenting, like I was like, "Wow, this feels amazing!" Like there's all these senior consultants who are giving me their full attention. I'm the second or third year medical student talking about this little project that that just is just it's so invigorating, so empowering, um, and, and it makes you feel like you, you really are contributing to medicine. Even as a junior, and it flattens completely flattens the hierarchy because there's no hierarchy when it comes to um, research. Whatever you're presenting, no one else knows about that topic better than you.
0: And believe it or not, it will have even wider applications than just clinical medicine or you know medicine related. For example, if people think that my interview skills are pretty good. It's because I gained it from doing my qualitative research, spending hours interviewing doctor after doctor. You know, certainly there's lots to be gained from doing research. It actually is. Uh, the benefits are far-reaching and beyond medicine, in fact. Now, I know you already covered of, uh, little bits and pieces of tips on getting involved in research because you mentioned please get full-time researchers involved as your supervisor rather than your clinicians who are just Busy focusing on seeing patients. Um, can you please share? Um, you know, do you have any other tips for med students and junior doctors on how to get involved in research?
1: Absolutely. I think the best thing um, I can say, and it's really not my own tips, but um, when I was a final year medical student, um, I was really lucky to have the opportunity to co-convene the research MD conference for my university. Um, And what we did as part of that conference is we actually held a panel um, and we invited some of the junior doctors who had a very positive experience with research. And we also invited um, a few full-time research experts who worked very closely with junior doctors. And one of the big tips that they gave was you really need to come up with a good research question. Some people work on really amazing projects and they put so much effort into it, but they they haven't looked up literature or they haven't investigated literature well enough Um, And then end up being disappointed in that they realise that their research has actually been replicated multiple times before. um, And therefore, you're not adding new knowledge and your work is not going to get published really that way. Um, But... To come up with a good research question, you need to go back to basics. You know, the basics you learn in medical school, and that's really how to do a good literature review, how to search for literature on PubMed. And there's YouTube videos that can teach you that, can teach you how to do that perfectly. So even if you don't remember how to do that from med school, just look up how to do an advanced search um, on PubMed um, and learn how to identify gaps in the literature. Um, that's not, not not a very hard task, but it also requires you to be just curious in general. So like, if you're a junior doctor, if you're an intern or, um, you know, a house officer, and you come across something interesting, you come a patient who comes in with, um, like, for example, a few months ago, whilst I was working um, on one of the medical wards, a patient came in um, with a chronic subdural hematoma, and their the hematoma was evacuated by the neurosurgeons, but they had been on blood thinners before they've had the hematoma. So then came the question of, well, when do we restart the, their blood thinners after they've had their hematoma evacuated. And when I spoke to consultants, everyone was like, oh, this is a consultant decision. Every consultant has a different opinion about this. And I was thinking, okay, so clearly there's no guideline. Clearly everyone seems to have their own opinion. Maybe it's worth doing a literature search and seeing and, and looking up, you know, what does literature say about this? Are there any guidelines that we don't know about? And the truth is I found a big gap. Um, there wasn't much and everyone, every paper came up with their own way about doing it. And then the idea came that this was the right time for a literature review. And I discussed it with a consultant and they said, yep, based on our clinical experience, this would be a good project to work on. This would be a good addition to literature. And we started working on the literature review um, for this. So you just need to be curious and sometimes I actually keep like like on my notes app on my phone, every time a question pops up in my head, I sometimes just keep a list of those questions Um, and and when the time comes and when I feel like I have time, I then look back at those questions and think, okay, maybe this would be a good project to work on. Um, So you just need to be naturally curious to come up with a good question. Uh, Another big tip. Um, was that you really need to familiarise yourself with the admin aspects of research. So as we already mentioned, know how to, apl- how to write a research protocol, um, know how to apply for ethics, apply for funding. Familiarise yourself for the anatomy of a research paper, you know, like w- how to write an abstract, how to write an introduction, the methods section, results section, discussion section. Just know the basic structure of that. If you're interested in literature review, familiarise yourself with the PRISMA a guideline, for example all it will take you is a few clicks on Google, look up what a Prisma pathway or flowchart looks like, and you'll understand how to do a systematic literature review. Junior doctors, medical students, we're all bright, we're all smart, um, and it honestly takes a few clicks and just a few minutes, just make the decision to look up how to do that. Start bringing up those discussions with your consultants, and as soon as they see your keenness, they will offer some of their clinical questions, which can be translated into projects. Um, as I think another tip that we were given, but I think that's something we already mentioned, is it's important to understand that research is a gradual process. So start off with smaller projects. So sometimes people start with small case reports um, um, or case series or uh, cohort studies, um, literature reviews. Um, and don't don't forget qualitative studies. So a lot of people just focus on quantitative type studies, but what about you know qualitative studies? That's Is
0: that my really? favourite. <laughs> yeah,
1: so they're, they're, they're fun. Like interviewing people, it's 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 fun. You get to know them. Plus, you know, it, nothing nothing gives a better insight into patients' experience than hearing them. Um, express those than just looking up numbers and analyzing numbers. It's research is not all about numbers and statistics. Um, so and that that's the easier type of research. It's something that any junior doctor can get started on. Um, and as you already mentioned, Dana, choosing a good supervisor and one of the uh, guests that we had on the panel um, said very wisely, you know, choose your project, to, sorry, choose your supervisor, not your project start thinking about networking opportunities um, and obviously presenting your research is uh, one big way to do that it's obviously very tricky now with COVID mm. but most hospitals particularly those large metropolitan hospitals will have their own dedicated research units and they'll have research workshops and those are gold mines workshops research workshops are gold mines for you to meet other researchers, and get involved in projects, pre-existing projects. So you don't have to think hard about choosing a topic. You just need to tell them, look, I'm keen to learn. Um, Can I be involved? And I've never, honestly, I've never heard of anyone who've asked a research, like a full-time researcher, um, and said, and and the answer they got was no. Um, There's always room to be involved. Um, Don't don't go in with the... um, with, with the goal of being first, second author, that's just, that, that's, that's a huge red flag to any researcher. <laughs> if you're you going with that mentality, uh, just me, it's just, it's, it's horrifying when you do that, um, when anyone does that. It's just, it's, it's very alarming because it shows that your whole intention of being involved in research, as we said, is getting a job. And that's, f- for full-time researchers, the, the worst thing is producing a paper that's only going to contribute to research waste. That's just not acceptable. It's wrong. Uh, journal clubs. Yep, yeah, that's the other one. That's the other big thing. Journal clubs are really good. Um, so, if you're a med student or a junior doctor, um, show some keenness in journal clubs. Um, maybe for a junior doctor, offer or, or uh, volunteer to a consultant if you can present a paper in one of the journal clubs and, and get some advice on how to interpret research and how to critique papers because you can't trust anyone. You can't just read the paper and be like, okay, that's what it that's just read the conclusion be like okay yep this this drug is beneficial nope you have to you you can't trust anyone you have to read very critically Um, and journal clubs in my experience have been the best way to gain skills in being critical when reading research because that's really what journal clubs are all about the paper is out there and everyone will start thinking no this is right this is wrong the methodology was not great should we trust their sample size should we trust their stats and listening to those discussions you learn so much by osmosis by just attending those general clubs
0: thanks so much for sharing all those i couldn't agree more with you i think the only other thing that i would like to add because you know those are really great tips um, for med students who struggle with uh, approaching other people because when you're a med student you're at the at bottom of the food chain and you're really shy and you often get you know st- stamped out or overlooked by um, junior doctors and registrars and consultants, if you don't feel comfortable approaching a journal club or, say, the research centre of a uh, metropolitan hospital, your other option is to talk to your own lecturers and um you know associate professors at your medical school because oftentimes not only are they lecturers they are also uh, especially the ones who are called associate professors or professors they are actually uh, part-time or some of them even full-time academics and sometimes even if they don't have something that you can be involved in yet they can tell you oh I know so and so who is involved in this you should get in touch with them and that was how I fell into my research paper I actually wasn't that pro- as proactive as you were Peter like you, you you were really persistent in like you know actually sending out emails and reaching out and meanwhile I was sitting back thinking Man, I really don't want to do research. And then, you know, there was an email that came from one of my um, professors who was um, sending it to the whole cohort saying the medical student who had signed up to do the paper dropped out because she was pregnant, she was having a baby. She's like, can't do this, This it's too stressful. And then I looked at the research question because it was already formed at the time and I thought, oh, I actually think that's interesting, you know, like for once, like I was um, vaguely interested in something related to research and I just put my hand up and fell right into it. So worst comes to worst, if you can't get anything through hospitals or journal clubs, which most of the time, um, a lot of good clinical type researchers will come from there um, if that's what and I think most junior doctors tend to want to do those kinds of kind of research because they think that they are then they feel like they're actively contributing to clinical medicine but if you can't then you know you can always fall back to universities like they're a great source
1: certainly I mean uh, that's really the place where research starts isn't it university that's where academia is yeah um, so yeah Definitely.
0: Now, um, I know I mentioned it a few times already at the start of this interview, um, you know, junior doctors and med students are constantly saying how they don't have time for research. Now, Peter, you're a very busy person. How do you juggle between your clinical work and research?
1: Um, <laughs> I mean, excellent question. Um, it's, it's not easy, um, but it gets progressively easier. I think with experience, um, you become more efficient at it. Um, I used to really struggle with this. Um, what I decided to do at the beginning of my internship is just to take a complete break from research and focus on being a good doctor um, and learning just how to be a good intern or a good resident. Um, what I do now is now that I'm sort of a lot more settled in my internship and I'm really towards the entail of it, um, I dedicate about one to two evenings a week. Um, to work on my research projects and there are some exceptional weeks when I don't get any research done and that's perfectly fine. Um, The key thing in my opinion is just setting deadlines for yourself Um, just like you do with assignments at uni. uh, If I think if you continue with that same mentality um, post-graduately as a PGY, I think that's a huge motivator but also like a force that will push you forward because it can can be it it certainly is tough it certainly is tough but once you learn to respect those deadlines in my opinion especially if you're a part of a team um those deadlines are absolutely are absolutely crucial um and they will they will push you to get the work done but at the same time um when you have deadlines you can sort of relax a bit because you know that there's a certain point at which you need to start working hard and a point at which you need to relax. So that's, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, that's just how I think about it. My advice is don't think or do any research when you're at work. Work time is just like sacred. I've seen junior doctors trying to collect data like in the doctor's office, um, you know, as soon as they get like time off. I'm like, if you have time off, enjoy that. But this is again, part of the mentality of, assessment in research it's not an assessment it's meant to be enjoyable it's meant to be something that you look back and be proud of rather than just some tick on your cv um, and i think one must be a good clinician before any other form of extracurricular activity so it's ultimately it's clinical experience and patient exposure that will guide research and topic selection that's just how i do it at the moment it might change <laughs> in the future but that's what works for me
0: That is a very good idea, and I think if we don't set deadlines for ourselves, it can fall on the wayside and then it may never happen. Like, for example, you mentioned, you know, projects do, a lot of projects do fail to progress. Um, One of the things that I found in my study was that um, my participants who were very reluctant to do research and the ones who quote that they are often time poor, and what I found it actually translated to they it wasn't that they were necessarily time poor it was that they were unwilling to give that time to research so we we give time to what we value so if they had already started off perceiving that research wasn't something worthwhile for them to do it was like you said a checkbox exercise they're not going to be keen to set aside two hours uh, you know every couple of days a week to dedicate that to research so um, you know coming back to the points that you mentioned earlier it's really important to pick topics that you're actually curious about interested in you know enjoy working on so if you hate quantitative research don't do that do qualitative research instead or vice versa and you'll find that you know you will want to do it and you will meet those deadlines because you're enjoying the work that you're doing
1: 100 percent, absolutely
0: absolutely. Now, <laughs> now peter we're coming to our last question for the night uh So can you please share with us uh, one or two things that's keeping you sane in your crazy, busy life right now? (laughs) Please tell me there's something else other than research.
1: (laughs) Of course. course. I mean, no matter what you do, you really should never lose yourself Um, because research can be very exhausting and time consuming at times. Uh, personally even though I like to think that I'm a, I guess an analytical person I'm very much right sided in my thinking I love arts um, I find it really therapeutic over the weekend just to take my brushes and my canvas and start painting something that I've been doing since a very young age and um, it's equivocal as to whether I'm a good painter or not some would say but I love it and I enjoy it and I lose myself in it I um, I have been trying to get some of my paintings into galleries, which has been really tricky during COVID. <laughs> but um, that's something I love to do. Another thing I think would be uh, classical music. I love classical music. I'm a huge fan of the opera. I can listen to Bocelli for days without stop. Um, I love small outings um, with the family, and I tend to do that at least once a fortnight. It just It's one of the big things that give that keep me sane. Uh, I think the path of a doctor in general is, you know, full of obstacles. And in my opinion, to get over those obstacles, you need to build self-confidence. And one of the my per, in my personal life, one of the biggest sources of that self-confidence is um, the support I get from my family. Um, you really need to have someone who truly believes in you, who you know. Um, that this person truly cares for you, and when when they when when this person truly cares for you gives you that confidence, um, you you really become unstoppable because you don't get the you don't need any sort of affirmation reassurance from anyone else once you have someone so close to you who gives you that confidence. That's one of the huge things that keep me saying. Um, I think already mentioned that I'm a Coptic Egyptian, and um, one of the other huge things that keep me sane is I always try and maintain my um, identity, my connections to my identity, Um, and very proud of my Coptic-Egyptian identity. I tend to maintain it um, and keep in touch with our traditional practices, um, our traditional music and hymns and weekly gatherings in our community. Sometimes I don't get get to enjoy it every week, but I always try and um, join in to our festives every now and then Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that I try and keep that that I try and keep in my life to keep me sane, um, and I think one should never ever lose himself into his or her career. Uh, it's um, I, I think in medicine we always talk about the difficulty in finding balance, but I think if if we look beyond the idea of balance and look as to how our outside life, so life outside medicine, can impact our career I think when those two things just sort of merge together I think that's when our chances of burnout are less and that's when I think we get to enjoy our career but we'll see I'm only at the very I'm I'm no I'm by no means an expert in anything I'm still at the very beginning of my career but you know those are the things that I think have worked for me and the things that I think I will continue to maintain in my life.
0: Oh, Peter, you're so humble. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom with us and for coming on to the podcast.
1: No wisdom at all, but thank you so much. It's been a <laughs> pleasure.
0: If you really like that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.